You're listening to WIOX LP Bloomington. This is American Student Radio. My name is Catherine De La Rosa, and I'm hosting today's show, which is Spooky, Scary Student Radio. Send shivers down your spine. From Bloom. <laughs> From. Uh, I'm gonna live. Li- what is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens, conspiracy, journalism, and lesbians. Happy Halloween! Welcome to our spooky, scary Halloween episode. We have a variety of content today, ranging from goofy Halloween fun to genuine terror. Much like a gradient, a gentle sunset, or the exposure in Harry Potter movies, we start off light and gradually get darker. Starting at light, let's look at Halloween the holiday. Our producer, Abby Gibson, sat in on the Situation Room of one of the most urgent crises plaguing America's children and adults every October, picking out a Halloween costume. It's Saturday afternoon of Halloween weekend, and I still don't have a costume. I'm to go to a party tonight where I'm expected to be in costume, so I've stared at my closet for about 30 minutes, racking my brain for something, anything at all, but nothing. I do this every year. Before coming to college, I didn't realize how much Halloween would make a resurgence. The last time it was cool to dress up was in middle school, so I was completely unprepared for the five different costumes that are expected for Halloween in Bloomington. So this year, I thought I'd find some Halloween experts and ask them for advice. So I'm Sarah, and... I'm Max. Um, um, hi. How old are you? Eight. You want to come over here, Jude? Okay. We have the radio. I'll translate. That's, that's, uh, this is Julian, and he's six. What do you think you want to be this year for Halloween? Um, a demon thingy. Have you thought about it a lot? Yes. When did you decide that you wanted to be a demon thingy for Halloween? About three months ago. That's pretty early, so you knew. Yeah. How do people pick Halloween costumes next? Like, what's the process? Like, break it down. You think of random things that you like, and then you just do any menu, money, mo or something, and choose which one you want. What were the things that you liked when you were thinking of your costume? What were some other options that went through your head? Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, um, Legolas, Aragorn. Actually, I think I might change back to Aragorn. (laughs) (laughs) They always do this! Dressing up for Halloween feels different now that I'm older. I'm not only choosing my costume based on what I like, but by what other people will think is cool or funny. And based on what's cheap. This is all too complicated for me. So I asked Julian to help me out. Hmm. A fish? A fish? What kind of fish? Um, a salmon. A salmon? How would I be a salmon? What What should I do for a salmon? A fin, a head, a fish head, fin, more fins, and scales. So, how would I act as a salmon if I was going to, you know, be a salmon for Halloween? You want me to flop around on the ground? That's what Max said. (laughs) (laughs) Then it was time for them to make the decision to order their costumes online. So these are like Lord of the Rings, Ranger, 
costume. Um, that one's really expensive. <laughs> it's like two hundred. It's like two hundred seventy-nine dollars. I don't know if we need to go there. Oh, which one? That one? Do you like that one? No. Do you want to look at um, what was the first thing you wanted to be? The monster zombie thing. Do you want to look at that now? Yeah. Okay. So scary. What What do you want your mask to be? Kind of like um, scary Halloween masks. I have. I think Abby. I don't think it's easier for them necessarily to figure out their Halloween costumes. I don't know. I want this. You want that? You really want that? Yes. Thing. Okay. I want to. I'm going to add it to the cart. Because I don't feel a sense of commitment. California Swamp Monster Child Costume. Why do you want to be a swamp monster? Just because it's creepy? Nah, I don't want to be. Jude, are you getting any ideas, honey? No. How important is your Halloween costume? Very important because if you don't have a Halloween costume, you might just not get candy. You might not get candy. Yeah. But it takes a really long time, dude, for you to pick a... Like last year, he picked his costume the night before Halloween, I think. Why Why did it take so long to decide, Jude Bug? Well, because I want a costume that's perfect. Yeah. Um. So, Adam's family. <laughs> Bobblehead Pumpkin, Child's Costume. No. Ruby's Midnight Spirit, Child's Costume. No. Child's Scary Ruby's Bones. Midnight Spirit. Oh, dude. I could see you totally rocking this. Don't you think? Truly, you could totally do this. Let's see. It's like, okay, I'll add to cart. <laughs> what? I don't even know what this is. Do you know what Ruby's is? Judy, you really like it? Yeah. Bleeding ghost face child costume medium. Mm-hmm. Includes a hooded robe, belt, bleeding mask. Pump and fake blood. <laughs> pump. <laughs> what does pump mean? It means that it's going to spray blood. That's <laughs> what it means. And it has, look, frequently bought together. There's an, a big dagger with red on it and, like, black gloves. Um, totally want it. You totally, you're really, okay, okay, so. Because it squirts blood. <laughs> All right, we're going to be super scary, huh? Bye. Super scary. You gonna buy it? You gonna buy it? I'm gonna add all three to cart. Hmm. All right, Max. Guess what that means? Jude and I are still looking, but you. Yay! <laughs> so we did. We did it. We got one down. But Sarah was right. As a kid, it's not that much easier to make up your mind. Halloween is one night to be something else, and that could be a lot of pressure. Since our interview, Sarah said Julian was deciding between a butterfly and an angel, but ultimately decided to go with something scary like his brother Max. For now, I guess I'll get to work on my salmon costume. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Abby Gibson. Or you could be... Hmm, let me think. Garfield? Garfield? Or Garfield's owner... John. John? You want me to be John for Halloween? (laughs) As Abby said, dressing up for Halloween does not stop after childhood. ASR executive producer Sophia Salaby talked to drag queen Oriana Perrone about the healing power of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. 
I state your name, pledge allegiance to the lips of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and to the decadence for which they sing one movie under Richard O'Brien on top of Patricia Quinn with sensual daydreams, erotic nightmares, and sins of the flesh for all. What you just heard was the Rocky Horror Oath, spoken at the beginning of every live showing of the film, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. In Bloomington, Rocky Horror is a Halloween tradition, and the Buskirk Chumley Theater hosts a viewing every year hosted by a local drag queen. I'm Christopher, uh, also known as Oriana Perron. Christopher was this year's host for the movie's pre-show, which includes a de-virginization ritual for first-time viewers. Um, I don't want to give away too much of what we do because I'd like it to be a little bit of a surprise, um, but they'll have to be making some very interesting noises on stage and we'll get audience participation involved. Almost 10 years ago, Christopher saw Rocky Horror live for the first time at the same theater and remembers getting recognized on stage. I had just gotten into cosplay and I came as Sailor Moon. I had just uh, left Collins dorm's Halloween party and then we went to Buskirk Chumley to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show and they had their costume contest and I went up on stage and I won. The movie itself is celebrated for its openness to gender and sexual identity. The two main characters, straight-laced and newly engaged Brad Majors and Janet Weiss, arrive at a party thrown by the mad scientist Dr. Frankenfurter, a man who identifies as a sweet transvestite. They're just thrown into this this chaos of, of what it means to be gender fluid, sexually fluid, um, uh, just open-minded in, in a way that you you feel okay just expressing who you are, whether that's in costume or whether that's uh, through song or whether that's just through the frivolity of the party that's happening at the mansion. Uh, And it's this whirlwind where this couple is then open to the possibility that their idea of what they thought happiness was because of the social constructs that we as humans had created, they're now broken and they're now open to seeing what other possibilities lie ahead for them. I've tasted blood and I want more. More, more, more. I'll put up no resistance. I want to stay the distance. I've got an ish to scratch. I need assistance. Touch, 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 touch me. I want to be dirty. Go me, chill me, fulfill me. So seeing a film that was so overtly sexual, so overtly um, oh, okay with the touching somebody else or seeing someone in their underwear or um, singing about sex or creating a sexual partner from the body parts that, you know, Rocky was created from. Um, It was shocking, uh, eye-opening, freeing. Rocky Horror just celebrated its 40th anniversary, and while it may not be Oscar-worthy, it's well-loved by fans, regardless of its quality. I mean, let's be honest, it's an awful film. <laughs> the The plot, it's, I mean, it's all terrible, but that's what makes it so wonderful. It's what makes it a cult camp classic. Um, and it, you know, you just get drawn into the filthiness of it all. And in Christopher's view, seeing Rocky Horror live makes the movie all the more special. You're sitting in a room filled with other people that feel the same way. They 
all are excited to see this show. They all love the ideas of what it brings. And it's straight people. It's cisgender. It's queer. It's everyone. I mean, it, they're all there. Was all I had to say. I want to come again and stay. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Sophia Salaby. That will mean I'm So Rocky Horror may have horror in its title, but it's really not horrifying. From my understanding, I've never seen it. The only thing horrifying about it to me is the idea of going to it and being de-virginized, but you know, whatever. Um, so it's probably a fine movie for ASR reporter Tristan Fitzpatrick to watch because he hates watching horror movies. But he does like talking about them. Here he is reporting on classic horror movies and what they say about the times we lived in. Movies are not just an easy way to escape the real world for a couple of hours. They can also reveal a lot about the society we live in. According to an article published in the New York Times, horror movies can reflect what was happening in America at the time they were released. From King Kong to The Blair Witch Project, here's a short history of horror movies and what they say about American society. Wild, weird, wonderful, the stuff... For which movies were made. King Kong was released in 1933 at the height of the Great Depression. While the plot of the film seems simple, an ape is brought to New York City, escapes captivity, and wrecks havoc on the town, it does reveal what America was like during the Great Depression. According to an article in Jump Cut, a review of contemporary media, the film was produced during the presidential election of 1932 between Herbert Hoover and Franklin D. Roosevelt. The grand plans to get King Kong to New York City reflect FDR's proposed New Deal programs, and Kong's eventual death reflects the skepticism some had about how effective those programs would be if he was elected. Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! Political themes dominate another well-known horror movie, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Released in 1956, This film is about how aliens replace the inhabitants of a small California town with identical duplicates of themselves. During the 1950s, fears of communism takeover were widespread throughout American culture. With a plot that has identical aliens replacing everyday people, this fear of invasion is definitely present in the movie. from her, you Fast forward a couple of decades to the 1980s. Our collective imagination had been scarred by the war in Vietnam, among other things. As a result, several horror movies were released that were implicitly about the war. One of the most memorable is the 1986 sci-fi horror classic Aliens. A sequel to the thriller Alien, Aliens is about the military's effort to take out a group of killer aliens who have taken over a distant space colony. The military in the film is well-funded and technologically advanced, but struggles against the guerrilla warfare of the aliens in a parallel to the conflict between the U.S. military and the Viet Cong in the Vietnam War. Uh, we're doing a documentary yeah. about the Blair Witch. Oh. oh, have you heard of the Blair Witch? Oh, yeah, that, that's an old, old, old story. The end of the 21st century and beyond in horror films coincided with the beginning of the information age. 
With portable video cameras and the internet, information was more portable and easily accessible than ever before. The Blair Witch Project, released in 1999, is the fictional story of three student filmmakers who set off to film a movie about the Blair Witch legend in the woods of rural Maryland. The trio record almost everything they experience as they encounter strange activity in the woods. Fueled by a digital marketing campaign that claimed the students had disappeared while filming the movie, the Blair Witch Project was a huge success, earning millions and inspiring a whole trove of found footage horror movies. The horror of the information age was captured in the Blair Witch Project. We can record the horrors that supposedly surround us. This Halloween, enjoy a good horror movie and realize that what you're watching probably says a lot about the time period it was produced in. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Tristan Fitzpatrick. As I said before, the first half of this episode is light and gentle, but we're about to take a break. When we come back, it's going to get a heck of a lot darker. For now, here's the mid-credits. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We broadcast live from WIUX 99.1 FM every Sunday at noon. This week, our show is Spooky Scary Student Radio, and we asked our producers what their favorite or first Halloween costume was. My first Halloween costume, um, when I was a baby, I was a pumpkin. Um, Once when I was like 10 or 11, I was an Armageddon survivor. My favorite Halloween costume was a couple years ago, I was in a group and we were the Scooby-Doo gang and I was Velma. And it was probably the most I've like put into putting together a costume. So every Halloween, my grandma would make the costumes for my sister and I. And I think my most memorable one was when I was this giant bumblebee. And I had these like really big antennas with pom-poms on the top. So I was an angel for literally four years in a row, which kind of leads me to believe that that was perhaps my favorite to be. (laughs) I don't have a favorite because my mother said I could only go trick-or-treating if I dressed up as a saint. So one year I was a flu bug. (laughs) I wore Tinkerbell wings and I had like these silky pajamas on. Um, and my nose is kind of red, and I just walked around, and yeah, I was a flu bug. And now, back to the show. Happy All Hallows Eve Eve, and welcome back to American Student Radio on WIUX. I'm Catherine Delarosa. This week is our spooky, scary Halloween special. We're entering the second half of the show, which I've called Lore. Three stories on spooky and outright sobering folk mythology. I just want to warn anyone who may be listening that it gets kind of dark from here on out. The next three segments discuss some pretty grisly deaths. There's mentions of murder, domestic violence, rape, and abortion. So if you're uncomfortable with any of these topics, please use your own discretion. First up, my fellow Filipino-American Angela Bautista produced the, the next the, this next piece about spooky folklore of our parents' homeland. My family loves to go camping every fall in Brown County. It's usually us and three or four other families, all Filipino. And I remember one time we went camping several years ago. It was dark and cold, and all of the kids were huddled up around the fire. And it occurred to us that we've never told ghost stories before. That's when the parents started telling us stories about creatures we had never heard of. Creatures from back home in the Philippines. Some were innocent and mischievous, like the duende, what we would call elves or goblins, or the capre, 
giant cigar-smoking tree trolls similar to Bigfoot. Others were pure nightmare fuel. There's the Tikbalang, a tall, bony, humanoid creature with the head of a horse, the torso of a man, long sinewy legs, and blood-red eyes. Then there's the White Lady of Balete Drive, a vengeful spirit dressed in white that haunts drivers in the misty night. Legend has it that a woman died on Balete Drive after crashing into a balete tree. Other stories say the woman was brutally raped by a taxi driver and left for dead on the side of the road. According to Filipino folklore, balete trees are known to lure spirits, which is why the White Lady's spirit still lingers in the area. She appears to drivers in the mist along the side of the road. Sometimes she appears inside the cars of drivers. Locals know well enough not to stare into the rearview mirror when driving at night, out of fear of meeting the gaze of the White Lady. And then, there's the Aswang. The name alone just gives me chills. I met up with my friends from the Filipino-American Association for their Halloween-themed meeting to learn more about the Aswang. Here's my friend, Francis Sebastian. The Aswang are by far the most prolific monsters in Filipino folklore. In fact, the term Aswang itself refers to various types of creatures that belong to this group. According to Spanish colonizers in the 16th century, the Aswang are the most feared monsters amongst the mythological creatures of the Philippines. Originally, Aswang are female ghouls, mostly described as vampire-like creatures that can change shape at will. It is difficult to accurately describe what an Aswang looks like because the description varies from region to region. A few similarities do state that these shapeshifters normally live as regular female townspeople, though shy, quiet, and mysterious. At night, Aswang take the forms of pigs, birds, or dogs and feast upon human body parts, namely the liver and the heart. The Aswang is said to have bloodshot eyes, an indication of their staying up all night in search of their victims. Aswang are an entire class of monster. They come in many different terrifying forms, but they all have one thing in common. They love the taste of humans. They prey on the vulnerable, the children, and the elderly. And some have an appetite for unborn fetuses. The most well-known type of Aswang is known as the Mananangal. Usually disguised as a female, the Mananangal sprouts huge bat-like wings and severs its torso from the rest of its body as it takes flight. Its name comes from the Tagalog word tangal, which means to separate. Mananangal roughly translates to one who separates itself. No one is safe from the Mananangal, especially expecting mothers. It lands silently on the thatched roofs of houses, and with its long, slender tongue, it drinks the unborn child as the mother sleeps, like a mosquito getting its fill of blood. It's easy to see how creatures like the Mananangal are used as a way to explain miscarriages and death, Much of the horror in these folktales is rooted deeply in Catholicism, which was introduced to the Philippines by the Spaniards in the 16th century. Many of these unholy creatures were thought to be the result of the death of an unbaptized child, which is a terrifying thought for Catholics. For example, the Tianak is an aswang that disguises itself as a newborn child. Born out of the death of an unbaptized baby, it seeks revenge on its mother who failed to baptize it. Over time, these origins have shifted, 
from not just the death of the unbaptized, but also the aborted. Today, many Filipinos hold a strong belief in these creatures and legends. Personally, I don't believe in them. But I do love these stories. They were part of our culture and collective oral history passed down through generations and generations. I asked some of the members of the Filipino American Association to share some of their scariest stories that were told in their families. Here's one from sophomore Kristen Kunanan. Uh, well, my cousin, she works as a nurse in the Philippines, and when she first started working, she worked in um, a ward in a hospital, which is just pretty much a lot of hospital beds and patients just, like, have privacy if they want curtains around their bed. And my cousin said that she was checking a patient one day, and this patient always has their curtains closed. So she went into the curtains, and she was just checking the patient, and the patient said, have you seen the batanga swung? And then my cousin said, I don't know what you're talking about. So the patient went on and was describing a child that had red eyes and would run around the ward and would stop in front of the bed of the patient that was going to die next. So my cousin, she just thought, oh, this lady's crazy. So she was just like, oh, that's funny. Like, oh, you're just telling me a scary story. Let me open up your curtain so you can have a new view. And then the patient started freaking out, was like, no, I'm going to see the batanga swung if you do that. So my cousin left the patient. She went up to her other nurse friends and was telling them what just happened, was telling them the story of the batanga swung. And then the other nurses were saying, oh, that's funny. My patients told me the same story. (laughs) So at that point, my cousin was starting to freak out, but she didn't really think anything of it. And then so the next day, she went to check another patient. This patient always kept their curtains open, but was sleeping at the time when my cousin was going to see them. When she got up to the bed, the patient opened her eyes, was just staring up at the ceiling, and said, huh, batanga swung, and then died the next day. The music in this piece was created by MechSoup and Silver Process with a Creative Commons license. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Angelo Bautista. also produce something about spooky folk tradition, but from my home in America, in Appalachia. Not a ton of people outside of Kentucky and the rest of Appalachia know that bluegrass and country music have some of the spookiest songs of all. Here's me and murder ballads. Appalachia is the cultural region of the United States, stretching across the Appalachian Mountains from Alabama up to Pennsylvania. It's where I was born, by way of eastern Kentucky. You may recognize it for its coal, its lumber, its starring role in LBJ's War on Poverty. The President and Mrs. Johnson board helicopters for a trip to the roots of Appalachian poverty in Martin County, Kentucky. And for folk songs like The Banks of the Ohio. I plunged a knife into her breast 
And I told her she was going to rest. Which is also a murder ballad. A murder ballad, one of several that hopped across the Atlantic Ocean, down the mountains, into mainstream bluegrass and country music, and an episode of House of Cards. Sing me something. What do you want to hear? Anything. Polly, pretty Polly, would you take me unkind? Oh, Polly, pretty Polly, would you take me unkind? Let me sit beside you and tell you my mind. Well, my mind is to marry and never to part. Yeah, he leads Polly into the woods and stabs her. The first significant swaths of white people to settle in Appalachia were the Scotch-Irish and the English, who brought with them a large and gory repertoire of English and Irish folk songs. Slap on some banjo and change Oxford to Knoxville, and your tragic English ballad becomes a fiddle dance at a Tennessee wedding. Go down, go down, you Knoxville girl, you can never be my bride. But the three songs I've mentioned so far have even more in common than being Appalachian and about murder. In Law and Order terms, the M.O. is almost the same. So the songs we're talking about today are Knoxville Girl, Banks of the Ohio, and Pretty Polly. First commonality, and the only one shared by all three. The killer's name is Willie. She cried, oh Willie, don't murder me. I'm not prepared for eternity. For mercy she did cry. Oh, Willie dear, don't kill me here. I'm unprepared to die. Oh, Willie, little Willie, I'm afraid of your way. Well, little Willie, I'm afraid of your way. The second commonality, the victim is blonde and Willie throws her into a river, the Ohio River in the banks of the Ohio and the Tennessee River in Knoxville Girl, which is a tributary of the Ohio River. I took her by her golden curls and drug her down to the riverside and there I threw her in the drown. The Willie of Pretty Polly led her into the woods and to a freshly dug grave for her. Polly, pretty Polly, your guess is about right. I dug on your grave the biggest part of last night. There's variations between these three songs and others like them. Sometimes the killer isn't named. Sometimes he's Billy instead of Willie. Sometimes he beats her instead of stabs her. Sometimes there's a river and sometimes there isn't. One thing especially sets Banks of the Ohio apart from the other two. The Willies of Polly and Knoxville go to jail and, in some versions, are hanged. Versions of Banks of the Ohio cut out before that point. Instead, they end with Willie expressing remorse. I started home between twelve and one 
I cried, oh Lord, what have I done? I've murdered the only girl I love because she would not be my wife. The common thread is that these songs were sung by the fathers of bluegrass music, and artists like Johnny Cash grew up hearing them. The combined influence of the Appalachian murder ballad and the Western murder ballad brought us Outlaw Country, the genre populated by Cash and Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard. Those two regional song traditions started to blur. Here's a Western swing ballad called Little Sadie. I said, yes, sir, my name is Lee, and I murdered Little Sadie in the first degree, first degree and the second degree. If you got any papers, won't you read them to me? And here's Johnny Cash at his 1968 Folsom Prison concert covering its modern variation, Cocaine Blues. Yes, oh yes, my name is Willie Lee. If you've got a warrant just to read it to me. Shut her down because she made me slow. I thought I was her daddy, but she had five more. At some point through the years, Badly Brown became Willie Lee. It's the stories of murderers like Willie that likely warmed outlaw country artists to the darker side of humanity and, in the case of Johnny Cash, to prisoners. He covered Banks of the Ohio several times through his life, the one ballad where Willie mourns. The song expresses sympathy for a killer, as did Cash. One of his most iconic tracks is, of course, Folsom Prison Blues. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die When I hear that whistle blowing I hang my head and cry. Murder ballads were swept up in the folk revival of the 1960s. Artists like Bob Dylan, Dave Van Ronk, and Joan Baez covered them, as did Olivia Newton-John. It's noteworthy that Newton-John's version has gender-flipped lyrics a predecessor to woman-sung country murder songs like The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia and Goodbye Earl. And they're oddly empowering. After more than a century of violence against women being normalized in folk tradition, country women strike back. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Catherine De La Rosa. Uh, We're running our show today with one last dose of lore, this time from our very own campus. ASR reporter Maggie Tully went on the Folklore and Ethnomusicology Student Association's annual Ghost Walk to find out more about the spirits among us. Here she is with Noni Ford. past Wednesday, I got to go on one of these walks and hear some of the stories of the ghosts residing around us and how they came to be in their current state. We have newspaper clippings from like the 80s and 90s of faculty that are dressed up that are going to lead the walk. That's senior Jackson Garrison, the treasurer for FESA. This was his last and final ghost walk. We talked to him to get some further details about this annual tradition. It's my last ghost walk. It's my fourth ghost walk I've been on and it's probably one of the uh, smoother ones that We've been on, so it's pretty great. Do you specifically know how many people came? In all, including 
those that got free admission either because they were children, they were dogs, or they were press. We had about 80 people. So we set off into the night, lanterns being carried by some of the leaders, helped to light the way. Lanterns are actually a big part of the tour. It's not that, you know, we use flashlights. We use lanterns because they just kind of give you a special little feeling. The orange streetlights casted spooky shadows as we reached our first destination. Senior Joel Chapman leading the group sounded his trumpet, and a hush fell over the crowd as we were ready to hear the haunting tales around IU. Hello all, and welcome to the Folklore and Ethnomusicology Student Association's 2016 Ghost Walk. I don't know. In the 1970s, there was a doctor performing illegal abortions on campus. He had to hide the evidence somehow, and according to legend, he would hide the evidence in the walls and under the floorboards. Eventually, the police found out about the doctor, and he was arrested. Though upon his release, the doctor hung himself in what is now the Career Development Center. At one point, it was a sorority house, and people have reported feeling strange presences on the stairs. They, like, uh, get knocked over on the stairs, or they feel, as the story goes, tiny, cold limbs on their shoulders. From 1906 to 1912, the IU Auditorium was being built. In the original plan, there were going to be skylights put in. One day there was a construction worker working high up on some scaffolding over the stage. Back in about 1912 or so, you know, air travel was very novel. And today, to see an airplane fly overhead is no big deal. But in 1906, 1912, if you see an airplane going overhead, you're going to look at it. As the man watched the airplane above, he began to lose his balance. A toolbox was dropped in front of the man and... And fell to his death on the auditorium stage floor. The mess left a blood stain that they were unable to remove, so they replaced the floor. But the stain still seeps through. The stain is... Is visible during especially emotional or tragic performances that take place on the stage. whispers about a lady in black. Dressed from head to toe in black Victorian clothing, the woman in black, some say, may not be human, because as she turns away, she makes an eerie gurgling sound. And she would be seen along Indiana Avenue and 3rd Street. Now, this woman would follow students as they left the library or as they went home. One story reported that a man was, was returning home from the movies, and he, he saw this woman coming after him. Have there been any more sightings of a lady? I am not aware that there have been any specifically of the lady in black. However, it seems that, that position has recently been filled by clowns. And so, you know, while it might not be the lady in black, you know, there's still these strange occurrences that take the same forms. All right, our next stop, we are headed to the IMU, right across the way. So, follow me. Well, 
one of the creepiest stories I think that we didn't actually get to do this tour was the story of La Casa. Before La Casa was a Latino cultural center, it was a house run by a woman. The house was open to boarders. She passed away, of course, and it became La Casa. The rumor is that she's still there checking up on people because she's in charge of hospitality around there and making sure that they're welcome. And so if I can remember correctly, one of the things that is most common about her activities is that she'll say the names of staff members repeatedly. Multiple staff members have reported that. I always think that that's probably the most the most eerie stories because it's told by somebody that it happened to. A lot of the other stories that we'll hear on the Ghost Walk are related secondhand that we've got in a repository of of ghost stories, but the La Casa stories, we have people from La Casa there that come out and talk to us about it. So that, that always makes it like extra level spooky. Why do you think people are just curious about okay. folklore? Why is there this draw to ghost stories? When I studied Irish folklore last semester, it became extremely apparent that people use the supernatural to explain things that they can't be comfortable explaining in any other way in their environment. People seem to take comfort in strange things, and you know it makes them feel better for whatever reason, and it has ever since humans told stories to explain things that they can't comprehend otherwise. We've reached the end of the episode. That was our spooky, scary Halloween special. Tune in next Sunday at noon on WIOX to hear Sophia Salaby interview Eric Deggins, NPR's first full-time TV critic and an IU alum. My name is Catherine Delarosa from WIOX in Bloomington. This has been American Senate Radio. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org.